Hello! And tweet tweet from me, because this month on the show, we're talking birds. Let's just count quickly the incredible things they can do. Fly, obviously, migrate thousands of miles around the world, remember things and use tools for some of them, for others, even talk. Today, we're spotlighting five of the coolest recent stories in bird genetics, where big things are controlled by tiny, tiny genes. I'm Phil Stanson, and this is Naked Genetics. Why don't we start with a pretty incredible bird, the smallest in the world, the hummingbird. They can actually hover mid-air, and uniquely among birds, can fly backwards and upside down. The quickest of them beats its wings more than 80 times per second. All of this aerial acrobatics requires some unique tricks of energy and metabolism, and Ariel Gershman from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine has been trying to figure out what in their genes makes all this possible. We're really interested in something that hummingbirds do called metabolic flux. They are able to maintain this extremely high metabolism and extremely high blood sugar that for most humans would be considered as diabetes. But hummingbirds are able to do this without getting any of the ailments associated with diabetes like blindness and kidney disease and all of these other problems that humans who maintain this persistently high blood sugar um, often experience. What's the flux part of that? Is it flux like changing really quickly? The flux is just this rapid shift that they're able to do. So when hummingbirds are eating, they're eating sugar um, from nectar, and they're able to use the sugar almost entirely to fuel their metabolism or how they break down that sugar to make energy. But then once they stop feeding, they have to rapidly switch their metabolism to be able to use this fat that they store in their body to then be able to get energy and store this extremely expensive hovering flight that they're able to do. And so if they weren't able to switch this metabolism so quickly from their fed state to their fasted state, then they wouldn't be able to continue flying. Oh my god, it it almost sounds like one of those animals that hibernates in winter and then does all their eating in the summer. But over the course of what, like minutes? Yeah, over the course of 30 minutes is how quickly they're able to switch this fed to fasted metabolism. What exactly are you doing to look into this uh, metabolic flux, as you called it? We first had to actually sequence and put together their entire genome. And once we had the whole genome together, we then had to figure out where genes in the genome are. Because only about 1% of the genome actually codes for genes that end up making proteins. And then what we did was we sequenced all of the hummingbird RNA. So if you can imagine, the genome is kind of like the blueprint for um, how to build the organism. Whereas the RNA is more like what's actually being made to allow the organism to survive and persist. How are you doing this here then with the, both the DNA and the RNA? What we mainly focus on is called long read sequencing. Some people call it third generation sequencing. Typical or the kind of the gold standard of DNA sequencing is this second generation sequencing right now. And in second generation sequencing, it's extremely accurate, but we're only getting small pieces of DNA at a time. Where in third generation sequencing, we're actually sequencing these really, really long molecules of DNA. And if you can imagine when you're putting together a puzzle, it's a lot easier to put together a puzzle with less pieces that are bigger than a puzzle with more pieces that are smaller. Um, However, we lose a little bit of the accuracy with long read sequencing. So it's more likely that there will be mistakes. Do you do anything to to compensate for that? Yeah, we do. Um, So then once we have the entire structure from the long read data, we go in and we correct it with the accurate short read data. 
And so this is a process that in the field we call um, hybrid genome assembly. Wow. And just for context, how big is the job? How, how many genes does a hummingbird have? Oh, uh, a hummingbird has around twenty to 30,000 genes. Not that much different than a human, actually. That's, yeah, quite a few genes to get through. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually not even the, the region of the genome that codes for genes. That's, that's the hard part. It's really the rest of the genome that we don't really know a lot about what it does. That's actually the hard part for genome assembly, because a lot of the genome is made up of repetitive DNA. And if you can imagine, if you have the same puzzle piece that fits in multiple locations, you really don't know where it actually goes. And, and, and what do you do in that situation? Yeah, so the longer reads actually really help us out a lot there. Because when we have the repeat, if we can get the information on either side of it, we can anchor it to the right region of the genome. These hummingbirds then, you're giving them a, a nice big meal, mm-hmm. then taking a bunch of blood to get all their DNA and RNA or, or what? We're actually taking their uh, liver and their muscle tissue. So those are the really important metabolic tissues. With all this incredible third generation sequencing, what what are you finding in there? Wow, I wish I had like the cure to diabetes or something crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But we're finding a lot of differences in expression in thyroid hormone, which is, you know, along the lines of of what we expected. Um, What we're really looking for and hoping to find is these glucose transporters not a lot is really known about how glucose, you know, sugar actually gets into the hummingbird cells and how it happens so quickly. Hummingbirds don't seem to have a lot of these genes that humans have that allow sugar to enter our cells. So how is it entering in hummingbirds? We, we don't know yet. And we're really hoping to figure that out. Do you, do you have any personal favorite theories at the moment? I kind of think that this glucose transporter that we're looking for that we don't think is present in hummingbirds I think that it might be. It's just that it's in a region of the genome that's so repetitive that previous people who have studied it haven't been able to find it because of this repeat problem. Ariel Gershman from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. That research is still underway, but do keep an eye out. Let's fly a little further now, because plenty of birds fly vast distances towards the equator for winter and away again for summer, trying to stay ahead of the changing temperatures of the seasons. And now zoologists have found a single gene that seems to help control where they go. How does it work? Well, the same way a gene inside me might be helping me run faster, or more accurately in my case, less slow, this one might be giving one group of warblers the stamina to fly a little bit further south than their neighbors. That's according to David Taves from Pennsylvania State University. We found this gene that we believe was responsible for differences in migration in a neotropical migratory wood warbler. Really? The, the genes control it migrating? I would have thought that's all, you know, stuff it learns when it's a baby or something. Yeah, I mean, these small songbirds, nobody really tells them where to go. That's amazing. What are these birds then? So these are neotropical migratory wood warblers. There's about a hundred and... 10 species, um, but we were actually focused just on two, golden wing warblers and blue wing warblers. What do they look like, these ones? They're very colorful, but blue wing warblers, unlike their name, are actually almost totally yellow with a little black face mask. And golden wing warblers look very different. Um, they're mostly white and they have a really distinct black face mask and throat. They're genetically very similar. 
And when they migrate, where do they go? These birds live primarily in the eastern U.S. uh, and Canada, but they migrate to Central and South America. How do you figure this out and track a bird to, I don't know, Central America? (laughs) Um, That's actually one of the trickiest parts. Following a tiny 12-gram bird over its entire annual cycle is logistically very difficult. We can't, you know, just put a GPS tracker on one of these birds because, you know, the battery that would be needed to power that and transmit data weighs about as much as the bird. And so my collaborators at the University of Toledo use these rather ingenious light loggers. These are little backpacks that you put on a bird where it's breeding and it just captures passive light throughout the day. And long story short, if you know the precise sunrise, sunset, and midday points, you can get an estimate of latitude and longitude. Now, you have to catch the bird the next year to download the data off these backpacks because, again, they don't have the capacity to transmit. So, you know, you inevitably, because these birds disperse, some of them don't all survive on their migration. If you are lucky enough or have enough money to put out enough of these backpacks and get enough of them back, you can actually get individual level movements for these migratory warblers. Okay, so you're learning where the birds go and then what, comparing that to the genes? Yeah, there was this really dramatic split between those birds that went all the way to South America to those that went to to Central America. And so then we used whole genome resequencing. We found this you know, very strong association with a single region of the avian sex chromosome. Um, and within the single region, we found a single gene. And the gene is VPS13A. Oh, that's a mouthful. It is. So this basically is involved in the crosstalk between the nucleus and the mitochondria. So this is kind of a gatekeeper protein that allows uh, lipids to move back and forth. Why would that be a thing for migration? I don't understand. Yeah, so that is the $65 million question, and we don't know. There are some suggestions that it's involved in regulating these molecular products that are associated with stress, called reactive oxygen species. These are sort of harmful byproducts that are produced when even you and I are exercising. And so the the hand-wavy explanation for what different variants of this gene are doing is that it's, you know, helping regulate how much of the stressful byproduct is being produced. But beyond that, we don't actually have an obvious clue of, you know, what this gene is doing. If you're right, you have one version of this gene, you're flying, you get a bit stressed of it, you drop down, you're in Central America. But you have the other version, you don't get as stressed, you're fine to keep flying for a bit, all the way down to South America. Yeah, that's the idea. David Taves. And you don't have to fly to South America to find that research. It's available online now in the journal PNAS. Now, another feature you see in lots of birds is called sexual dichromatism, the scientific way of saying females have different colors to males. Think of mallard ducks, for example, or compare colorful peacocks to brown peahens. 
There's a type of canary that has this too. It's called the mosaic canary, and it's a crossbreed between other canaries and a bird called a red siskin. And now, scientists from the University of Porto in Portugal have found a gene that seems to be regulating the sexual dichromatism. Malgorjata Gazda explains. We found the gene that regulates the sexual dichromatism, so difference in the coloration between males and females in birds. That's something that's really common, right? A lot of birds have different coloured males and females. Yes, and some of them will have the carotenoid coloration, so red, orange or yellow coloration, and some of them will have also melanin coloration, so more brown and black. Now, what, what birds exactly are you looking at here? domestic canaries, but to get them uh, sexual dichromatism, the breeders crossed the canaries with the red sea skin, and then they got the breed, which is called mosaic canaries. This mosaic canary then, that's a, a crossbreed with the red sea skins, this has sexual dichromatism, which the other canaries don't? Yes, the wild canaries, they have a very slight sexual dichromatism, but then most of the domestic canaries, usually the male and female, look the same. What do the mosaic canaries look like then? Red or yellow. And then the male will have a lot of carotenoid coloration accumulated in the feathers, in the face, in the wing and in the tail. Are they pretty then, these red or orange birds? Yes, they're re really pretty. <laughs> but all canaries are really pretty. How did you go about looking into the genes then? We sequenced the genomes of a couple of breeds of canaries. We found a very strongly differentiated uh, region in the genome between regular canaries and mosaic canaries. The region was the same as in red sea skin that confirmed that this region was uh, introduced from red sea skin. This region encodes three genes and excitingly, BCO2, beta-carotenate oxygenase 2, is the gene that is involved in the carotenoid uh, metabolism. So this gene, basically, it removes pigment from the tissue. Oh, I thought you were going to say that they got a gene from the red siskins that made the carotenoids, not one that got rid of them. Yes, excitingly, it's other way around. That's, that's strange, right? Yeah, a little bit. So actually, the females have to put a lot of effort to remove the pigment, not to deposit it in the feathers. I mean, how can this gene uh, then be doing different things in the female birds and the male birds? It's probably regulated by the hormones. And then when it's active, the females remove the coloration. And in the males, the gene is not active, so they end up depositing the pigmentation in the feathers. Does that tell you anything about how these birds evolved? Yes. So having one large effect gene that regulates the trade helps evolution to be uh, quite quick and uh, that they can gain or lose the trade pretty quickly. So you're saying the fact that it's all controlled by one thing means you can switch that one thing off and on really easily. Yes, precisely. Malgorjata Gazda. That paper is from the journal Science. Stick around after the break for how light pollution makes birds sicker when they've got a virus, plus the sequel to Jurassic Park with slightly fewer T-Rexes. 
Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Hello, sorry to butt in. Katie here from the Naked Scientists. Did you know we make other naked shows too? The fraction of all humanity who has actually gotten a chance to see their own brain is very tiny and you are welcomed to that club. So if you enjoy musing over the mind, reflecting on thought or frankly feel bamboozled by the brain, check out Naked Neuroscience. Well, my face hurts now, so yeah, let's go with spicy. <laughs> Don't go down into the creepy cellar yeah. and turn the light on. <laughs> exactly. Access the full archive via nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We've got two more bird brain stories for you. And given how smart some birds are bird-brained, that's nothing but good. The first has this relevance to the coronavirus, which seems likely to have come to us from bats, possibly via a third party, like a pangolin. If so, it would be far from the first time that an animal virus decided humans looked similar enough to make the jump. I'm thinking of bird flu, a mad cow disease, even HIV. Zoologists from the University of South Florida have therefore been looking into the ways animals live alongside humans very closely nowadays, and in particular, testing out how light pollution affects sparrows that are carrying a common but dangerous disease called West Nile virus. Here's Meredith Kernbach. House sparrows, when they're exposed to light at night, they're not able to cope with infection with West Nile virus as well. They maintain the disease for longer and may actually die more easily from it. So the light seemed to screw with their health in some way and, the, and they couldn't deal with the virus as well? Right, correct. So individuals are actually staying sick for longer, which may increase their opportunity to cause a West Nile virus outbreak in their area. West Nile virus is one of those things that spills over to people in the United States and in Europe and in Africa. Um, and basically, we're broadly interested in why these diseases spill over. And so we chose kind of light at night because we also know that light at night is uh, rapidly expanding across all continents, except for Antarctica, of course. But we know that it has a lot of other negative effects. What was your version then of a sparrow in like a, a suburb? Presumably, you didn't actually release sparrows with viruses into the suburbs of a nice city. Right. So we performed experimental infections in captivity, which has its caveats because it's removed from nature. Um, and these sparrows are housed basically on one side of the room and we rig up sort of a, a, a small light bulb, like a, a light bulb you'd find in your house on the other side of the room at a dim enough level that you might find in nature. And then you give them a bit of the virus? Right. So we expose them to a very low amount of virus. What does that look like, a sparrow with West Nile virus? It depends on the sparrow. There's a lot of different variation. Some birds will fluff up or look lethargic, and then other birds you'll never even know that they were sick. If it's hard to tell whether these birds are, are actually that sick sometimes, what are you measuring to figure out how bad the light pollution is hitting them? 
We'll measure an individual's body mass, which indicates, you know, how well they're coping with disease. You might assume that a bird that's losing a lot of body mass is a very sick bird. And then we'll also take a blood sample to measure how much virus is in circulation or how sick they are by how much virus they have in their blood sample. And what do you find out? How big a deal is light pollution for that? Light pollution actually does end up being a pretty big deal for these sparrows. The sparrows that are exposed to light at night actually have much higher amounts of virus in their blood. The hormone melatonin might be involved. It's a hormone that's secreted at night but is suppressed in birds that are exposed to light at night. And melatonin is a regulator of the immune system, which means without melatonin, your immune system might be all out of whack. Another mechanism is that the immune system will fluctuate throughout the day. So certain immune cells may be at higher concentrations or there may be more of one immune cell during, say, the daytime. And so when they don't have the difference between light and dark anymore, their immune system may just get all scrambled up with not knowing what time of day it is. Now, we're on naked genetics here. I mean, do you, do you have any clues for me from the genes of these sparrows? Yeah, absolutely. So in another study, we performed a transcriptomic analysis, which basically tells us which genes these sparrows are upregulating in order to cope with West Nile virus infection. And the birds who are exposed to light at night upregulate these genes that are associated with, uh, say, pathogen resistance, um, which is counterintuitive because you would expect that the birds with more virus would have worse resistance. But these birds that have more virus are actually upregulating these pathways earlier. And we also found from some of these other, you know, genetic signatures that individuals that are exposed to light at night are incurring more pathogen-induced damage, which means uh, suffering a lot more from infection. Huh. So it seems like whatever light is doing to these birds, the genes are desperately scrambling to keep up. Exactly. Meredith Kernbach. Although the cages they experimented in are clearly different to the real world. There are implications for things like the coronavirus. Let's hope it hasn't made the jump to animals living in our light-polluted cities. You can find some of that research in the journal Ornithological Applications. And finally today, a treasure hidden under the Siberian permafrost. Luva Dalian from Stockholm University tells the story. Back in uh, 2018, I was part of a research expedition to a place called Belaya Gora, in northeastern Siberia to go alongside Russian tusk hunters that were searching for mammoth tusks, going into these permafrost tunnels. And while we were there, one of the local Russians came out from one of the tunnels holding something very small in his hand. And it turned out to be a very small bird that looked extremely well-preserved. What did it look like? It was a bit dirty and wet, but otherwise it basically looked like a like a bird that had died just a few days ago. Just just like an ordinary brown bird. 
Yeah, I mean, given that it was partially covered in kind of melted permafrost, which is muddy, it, it gave a quite sad impression initially, given that it was wet and, and so on. But it was pretty clear when we cleaned it up that all the feathers were preserved and the overall shape. And, and you could see a small injury to its stomach where you could see some of the intestines and, and stuff like that. So it really looked like something that had died only a few days ago. Did you give the bird a name? Initially, we have been calling the, the bird Icebird. And you didn't know what kind of bird it was? We didn't know what kind of bird it was, uh, what species it was. What did you do to, to try and figure that out? We were going to use the feathers to send for radiocarbon dating. So this is a method that you can use to very accurately determine the age of an old specimen. It turns out that this bird was 46,000 years old. That's so old! It is exceptionally old. It's very close to the actual limit of radiocarbon dating. Did you figure out what kind of bird it was? Yep. We then extracted DNA from the bird and sequenced it. And this bird was from a species called horned lark. Horned lark. Which is a small passerine bird that inhabits a large distribution in the northern hemisphere. What was the state of the DNA after 46,000 years in the Siberian ice? The DNA is in quite poor state. Normally, DNA molecules are extremely long, and over time, they fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. And, and this is how the DNA looked in this specimen as well. On top of that, the DNA was also contaminated by DNA from the environment. Plants in the sediments and bacteria that had probably been infesting the bird right after it died and, and so on. By sequencing a lot of the DNA in there, we could sort of pick out the few DNA sequences that actually came from the bird itself. And then we could puzzle together the whole mitochondrial genome, the small genome that exists inside the mitochondria, which are the small powerhouses inside all animal cells. Did the mitochondria look like the mitochondria of a horned lark today? Or was it like, clearly, this is an old mitochondria here? This bird is clearly old because it doesn't look exactly like the modern horned larks. Today, horned larks are divided into a large number of different subspecies. And what we could show was that this particular bird actually seems to have belonged to a population that was a common ancestor of two subspecies that exist today. So this is before the two species were two. This is the original one. Yes, before the two subspecies sort of evolved does that tell you something about how these two subspecies evolved or, or when they evolved? We think it does. So these two subspecies, one of them lives in northernmost Russia today, and the other one inhabits uh, the steppe in Mongolia. And so what we think happens is that back during the last ice age, the environment was comprised of a bit of a mosaic of different habitat types. And what happened at the end of the last ice age was that these, this mosaic kind of stratified into the big biomes that we know today. So we do think that when the environment itself stratifies into these large-scale biomes, so did the horned larks to the north and also to the south. How incredible is it that this bird got injured, flew into a, you know, the ice or something, and then 46,000 years later, it's telling you all about how two different subspecies formed? It's quite amazing, isn't it, that that something that old is preserved for in, in such a perfect state. It's a bit like using a time machine where we can travel back in time and, and look at evolutionary change. 
Maybe it's because I watched Jurassic Park last night, but it feels a bit like that. You know, they found the fly in the amber with the DNA from the dinosaur. And it's just this unbelievable event that tells you a million things. It really is. Uh, actually, one of our colleagues who, who was with us in Siberia inside these tunnels, he, he kept whistling the, the, the theme song from Jurassic Park when we were there, <laughs> uh, which was quite fitting. So preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Although, in this case, they definitely should. That was Luva Dalian, and you can read about the iceberg in the journal Communications Biology. That's it for this month's Naked Genetics. Thanks to Ariel Gershman, David Taves, Gosha Gazda, Meredith Kernbach, and Luva Dalian. As always, you can read transcripts of the interviews and find links to the original papers on our website, nakedscientist.com. If you like the show, maybe recommend it to a friend or post about it on social media. Or if you got really into birds after this episode, maybe train a flock of starlings to fly in a beautiful formation that spells out the Naked Genetics URL. I don't know, whatever floats your boat. We'll be back next month. I've been Phil Sanson, and for now, goodbye! Goodbye!